We are going to be in Malachi chapter 2. We're going to begin with the last verse of chapter 2, and we're, we're going to go through the first five verses of chapter 3. And what you're going to see is that God is concerned with the things that his people are saying, their words. And you all know Samantha and myself, we are parents, and our oldest, Graham, talks a lot. And because of this, our youngest, Charlie, is now beginning to talk much earlier than Graham ever did. And so one of the big things that we hear Graham say all the time is, I want a snack. And perhaps you've heard him say it, perhaps you can relate, uh, but we hear him say that at least a hundred times throughout the day. Mommy, Daddy, I want a snack, I want a snack. And so because of this, you know, repetition is a, is a good teacher, Charlie has now started to say, oh, nah, oh, nah. And you, if you were to hear that, you probably would have no idea what she's saying. But because we are with her all day and we know that she's hearing Graham say, I want a snack all day, we know that she's saying, I want a snack. And it never ends until they get the snack. But it's this constant question over and over and over again. And even if they just had a snack, they will come to you and say, I want a snack, or I want that. And it's this constant, wor- a constant question over and over and over again, and it will wear you out as a parent. You will try and be resolved and say, no, you're not getting another snack. You already had one. You're going to wait till dinner. But they will just keep asking and keep asking and keep asking until either it gets to dinner time or you give in and give them another snack. And we can get beat down by those words or become tired of hearing that same thing over and over and over again. And here in in Malachi, God is speaking and telling his people that he has become wearied by their words, by the things that they're saying. So let's look at, we're going to begin in chapter 2, verse 17. And if you have your, your Bible with me, follow along. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say... How have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So again, we're seeing this same same paradigm where God brings a charge against the people and they respond by asking, well, how have we done that? We've seen it in chapter one, verse two. 
God says, I have loved you. And they respond by saying, how have you loved us? Chapter one, verse six, God says that they have despised his name and they respond by saying, well, how have we, resp- how have we despised your name? In verse, chapter two, verse 13, God said that he does, has no regard for their offering and they say, why do you have no regard for our offering? And then right here in chapter two, verse 17, God says that they have wearied him with their words and their response is, how have we wearied you? The one thing that I have noticed over these last couple of weeks as Josh has been preaching is that the people of Israel respond with a lot of pride. God is bringing these accusations to the people. He's, he's sharing with them the things that he is feeling and, and saying. And their response is not to recognize that they have done wrong and to be heartbroken over it. Rather, the response is one of pride, saying, well, how did I do that? Perhaps you've experienced this in in relationships that you have with one another. Someone will bring something to your attention, and it kind of hurts deep down inside. And so we don't want to admit that we've been that way. Our natural response is to get defensive and say, whoa, 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 how have I done that? And when God brings an accusation against his people, it absolutely holds weight. Sometimes people might bring an accusation against you that's false, that's not correct, that's not true. But if God brings an accusation, you can be sure that it's true, that it's right. And when God's people constantly over and over and over again respond by, wait a second, wait a second, well, how have I done that? Or or, how am I guilty of this? Or why do you not accept my offerings? So prideful. Church, we should not be that way. I have time and time again found myself reading the Bible and I feel a conviction. The Bible is, is exposing sin in my life and my initial response is to think, I'm sure that's just a coincidence that I thought about that. I'm sure God's really not convicting me of that. It's just a random coincidence. But y'all, what God is doing is he's exposing our sin. God is, is purifying us through the word, showing us what he hates, showing us what's wrong, and showing us how to repent and to turn back to him. Y'all, we need to be able and willing to respond to God in a humble attitude. And the the people here in the book of Malachi have not done that. And what it's been making me think of over these last few weeks is what I titled this sermon is that God is patient. And that's my first point. God is a patient God. We see this mainly in verse 17, just like I've been saying. God says to the people that you have wearied him with your words, but they say, how have we wearied you? And then we have the response. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So for a little bit of context, what's happening right here in the book of Malachi is that the Israelites have returned to the land of of Israel. They've returned to the promised land. And the temple is now rebuilt And so what the Israelites are expecting is a time of flourishing, 
a time where they're a strong country, where they're not being overthrown by outside nations, and where God's presence is, is visibly there in the temple. And now the temple is rebuilt, but they're not seeing his presence in a very real and tangible way like it was when Moses built the tabernacle or when Solomon finished his temple. They're not seeing these promises that the prophets have made before come to fulfillment right now. And perhaps they're upset about it. Perhaps they're questioning, why is God not doing the things that he said he was going to do? Why does it feel like he's not keeping up his end of the bargain? And what seems to be happening is they're upset with God and they're saying things now about him. Verse 17 tells us that they're saying that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Now that is some backwards thinking. We know that God hates evil. God hates sin. And he is not happy with those who do those things. But they even go farther. Not only is everyone who does evil is, is good in the sight of the Lord, but he delights in them. You see, I think here's what's happening with the people of Israel. They are allowing their experience to shape what they believe about God. See, I think that they're experiencing that there's a lot of evil happening all around them. There's a lot of bad things going on, and God doesn't seem to be concerning himself with that evil. God doesn't seem to be bringing judgment or punishment upon the people who are doing these evil things, and it's going on for a long time. So they're starting to draw the conclusion, God must not care about the people who are doing evil. Matter of fact, it seems like he's taking delight in it. And we probably are sitting here thinking, crazy for us to come to that conclusion, to think that we could ever come to a conclusion where we would say that, that God thinks those who are doing evil are good and he's delighting in them. But we do this too. I have met many people, I'm sure you have as well, that their whole idea about God is wrapped up in God is love. They get this from 1 John 4, verse 8 says that, direct quote, God is love. And I'm not saying that that's not true, but we have people who their whole conception of God is all wrapped up in that verse. They never think about the fact that God is a judge. They never think about the fact that God is holy and will punish sin. They only think about the fact that God is love. And so, in their natural experience, when they experience things, that seem to say that God is not loving, it causes them to question everything that they believe about God because they've created this whole idea or this belief about God that's based on partial truths. And so the only thing that's gonna happen is one of two things. Either they're gonna go to the Bible and inform that partial truth with more truth to get a fuller picture to help them uh, understand their experience that they're experiencing or they're gonna allow that experience to further shape what they believe about God. And I believe that the Israelites are doing the same thing. In their experience, they're not seeing God deal with sin. They're not seeing God deal with the evil that's happening all around them. 
And it's causing them to come to the conclusion, God must be good with it. And y'all, when we say over and over and over again that God is okay with evil, you think God's gonna get tired of hearing that? God knows that he's not okay with evil. God knows that he's not delighting in those people who are okay with evil or that who are doing evil. And so for his people to say over and over and over again that this is true about him, God is saying, that is wearying me. It's making me grow tired of the things that I'm hearing. And my thought is, well, God, why are you not striking them dead when they say such blasphemous things? And it's because our God is such a patient God. He is so patient. I was thinking about and back in the book of Genesis, early on in the Bible, we have the story of Noah and the flood. I was thinking about this just because this last week, we have a little toy ark that Graham plays with. And because we had been moving, I think it was packed, it was in a box or something, and Graham just happened to find it. And of course, inside of the ark was Jackson Storm. So thankfully, he found his race car and the ark. And so I was thinking about the ark, and Noah, a long time to build the ark. And before that, the Bible tells us that there was only evil continually happening by the people on earth. The world was a wicked place. People were not worshiping God. People were not fearing God. People were doing whatever they wanted, but yet God was patient. And enduring that sinfulness and enduring that evil, as he told Noah exactly what to do, how to build the ark, but that whole time, God was patient, patiently enduring the evil that was happening on the earth. And after the time had come, when the, when the ark was finished, God put Noah and his family inside. He closed the door, and he sent rain upon the earth. See, judgment did come for the sin, but not after God provided a way of escape. See, but God is patient. I also think about Exodus chapter 34, when, when at, this is after Moses had smashed the tablets, the Ten Commandments that God had given him, he came back down from the mountain and found the people worshiping this golden calf that Aaron had made, and he was so angry that he smashed the tablets. And so now God had told him to cut two more tablets and to come back up on the mountain. And when he did, this great cloud of smoke came down, and God, revealing himself, telling Moses about himself, says... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God says about himself that he is slow to anger. He is patient. And as we've been studying through the book of Malachi, I have been thinking about that week after week after week. God, if these people are, are disobeying you, why do you not just strike them? It's because God is patient. And because if he did just strike them, then he would have just struck you and me long ago. The God that we serve is a very patient God. He endures sinfulness. He endures evil. Now, there will, there will come a time when that ends, which we'll see a little later. But don't forget that our God is patient. And there's a reason for his patience, which we'll see again here in just a little bit. 
Another thing that I want us to be reminded of is that God is, is not different in the Old Testament than he is today. This God who is patient in the days of Noah, who introduces himself to Moses as a God who is slow to anger, and this God who is patiently enduring all of these wicked, sinful things that the people are saying about him is the same patient God that we are worshiping right now. He's patient with us. Although we fall short, although we sin, although we fail him, he is patient. But second, I want you to see this morning that our God is a refining God. God is patient, but God is also a refiner. Look with me at chapter, chapter three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. A few things here. The, the name Malachi means my messenger. So there's a play on words here in the book. Malachi is a messenger from God to the people. But in chapter three, he says, behold, I send my messenger. So God is saying, Malachi is my messenger, but I'm also sending another messenger. And then we get further into, into verse one, and we see that there's even yet another messenger, right? So we've got Malachi, who's a messenger from God to the people. He says, I will send my messenger. So there's a separate messenger. And then we see uh, the second part of verse one, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant. So there's a third messenger. A lot happening. So there's going to be a messenger who comes to prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant. Now, we know, based on our, our New Testament reading this morning, that this first messenger is John the Baptist. This was, that was Jesus himself who quoted, talking about John the Baptist. He quotes Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. We know that this is talking about John the Baptist. This finds its fulfillment in John the Baptist. So if John the Baptist is the messenger preparing the way, then the messenger of the covenant is Jesus. The messenger of the covenant who's going to be the refiner is Jesus. But before we get into that, the fact that we need a refiner points to the fact that we're not acceptable the way we are. The fact that we need to be refined means we're not acceptable the way we are. This is important for us to know. This is a, a, a crucial aspect of the gospel that we proclaim. All human beings need forgiveness of sins. All human beings are guilty of sin against the holy God. And because of that, they cannot have community with God. We cannot have a relationship with God because we are sinful and he is not. He is holy. He is pure. 
we need to be refined. And I hope that all of us understand this morning that we are imperfect, that we are sinful, that we fall short of the standard that God has set. It's only once we understand that that we really begin to embrace how essential Jesus is. If we don't understand that we are fallen and that we, we need to be refined, then the ministry of Jesus doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The work of Jesus doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If I can get to God by myself, then why in the world would Jesus die on a cross? The reality is that none of us can. And the Israelites could not either. Clearly, by the things that they're saying, they need to be refined. They need their thinking changed. They need their hearts changed. And God, thankfully, is a God who refines his people. He's a God who refines. Malachi talks about him as one who can endure the day of his coming. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now, we probably don't have a real full idea of what refining looks like, the whole process. But I've got a ring on my finger, and this is gold. And it did not come out of the ground looking like this. When you get gold out of the ground, it looks mixed up with a lot of other things. It's very impure. And so what has to happen is it has to go through this process of being refined. And I don't really, I couldn't tell you all the particulars of what happens, but I have seen some videos online and and on TV shows where they put the gold through this super, super hot furnace. And what it does is it burns off all the impurities. And all the things that don't belong will not survive the fire. But the gold, although it gets melted down, it will survive. It will not be consumed by the fire. And when it comes out, you will then have purified gold. And it's the same way with you and with me. You see, our lives are filled with contamination and with sin. And they need to be refined. They need to be put through this process of refining in which all the impurities are taken away so that that which is left is is pure and is acceptable to God. Jesus is that refiner. Jesus is the one who is going to refine his people. Verse three, he will sit as as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. We need to be refined. We are imperfect, we are impure, and we need to be made right. Jesus is the one who does this work of refining. And we know this because of what he does at the cross. Jesus' work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection is the ultimate refiner. It is only through Jesus' death and resurrection that you and I can be refined. You see, all of us as sinners, we can't work our way back to God. We're stuck. But yet God has sent Jesus to refine his people. It says to purify the sons of Levi and to refine them like gold and silver and then 
they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. You see, we, we can worship God. We can bring offerings to God. But none of it is acceptable until we have been refined. See, he says it's only after refining the sons of Levi that they bring acceptable offerings to God. Verse 4, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. For us to be here this morning, for us to sing praises to God, if our heart is not changed, that's not pleasing to him. You and I must be refined by Jesus, by the blood that he spilled on the cross. We must look to him. We must believe in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's only when we do that God has refined us. He has now given us the righteousness of Jesus and taken our sinfulness away. And it is then that, that our worship is acceptable to God, that our, our offerings and our sacrifices are acceptable to God. You see, God is a refiner, but, but lastly, third, our God is also a judge. God is also a judge. Look at verse five. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. God is a judge, and it's important that we know that, partly because of what I said earlier, we don't want to have a misinformed idea of God. Our idea and, and our belief about who God is needs to be informed by the Bible, so we need to have the whole picture. But notice the timing in which these things happen. Verse five says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. Only then, which is after he has sent the refiner. See, it's important that the timing, we understand the timing. God does not draw near to judgment before providing a refiner. You see, the truth is, all of us need refining. If God were to draw near for judgment before he sends a refiner, no one makes it. We are all destroyed. But it's important that we see that God sends a refiner before he comes for judgment. Amen? Again, Exodus 34, 6, God is showing that he really is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, God does not have to wait to send a refiner before coming to judge. God would have every right to draw near to judge at the very moment that we first sin. But he is slow to anger. He is abounding in, in grace. He is, he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God in his grace and in his mercy, before coming for judgment, has sent a refiner, and that's Jesus. God is never going to judge his people before providing a way of escape. 
The same is true throughout all of, of the history of the Bible. Think about when God delivered his people from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and, and, and God went through the ten plagues. And the very last plague was perhaps the, the worst. God said, the firstborn in every house will die tonight. Unless you sacrifice a lamb, and you take the blood, and you put it on the doorpost. You see, God was coming with judgment that night. God was coming as a judge, and he would kill the firstborn in every house. But before he came to judge, he provided a way to be saved. He provided an escape. If you believe him and if you obey him, he will pass over your house. The same is true for you and for me. God will draw near for judgment. He says it right here in verse 5. Make no, question, no, no questions about it. He will draw near for judgment. God is coming a second time, not to deal with, with sin. He's already dealt with sin. He's coming to judge. But before he does, he's provided a refiner. He's provided a way of escape. And if we believe him and obey him, we will escape the judgment. Church, we must believe on Jesus and obey him if we want to escape the judgment. God talks about the kind of people that he will judge or the types of sins that he will judge. In verse five, he says, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, against those who oppress the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and in case you didn't think you fit in any of those categories, and those who do not fear me. That's the catch-all. You see, we can look at that list. We are, we are list people. We are good at making lists to either get things done or making lists to try and convince ourselves that we escape or that we're not guilty of any of those things. It's easy for us to look at the Ten Commandments as a list and think, well, I haven't killed anybody, check. Haven't committed adultery, check. We are, check, we are list people. We love to look at a list and say, uh, yeah, I compare pretty good to that. I think I, I make it. I think I make the cut. And God is saying, if that's what you want to do, also, I'm coming to judge those who don't fear me. And we cannot check that box. All of us have failed to fear God. Because fearing God means we obey him. Fearing God means we don't sin against him. And the reality is that's not true. There is no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. So the reality is all of us fit these categories for the types of people that God is coming to judge. But the good news is that although we fall into these categories, although we fit the bill for those who deserve judgment, God has provided the refiner. And church, he is willing to refine anyone who will come to him in faith. 
Anyone who comes and looks to Jesus and believes on the work that he has done on the cross, who believes that God will promise forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Jesus, anyone can be forgiven of their sins and escape the judgment of God. Now again, it's important that we understand that God is patient. I wanna read you a verse from, from 1 Peter. Peter put it so well. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, the people of Israel, their perception was that God's not dealing with evil. He must be okay with it. Not only that, he must be delighting in those people who are carrying out evil deeds. But Peter would say, you don't understand. He's not slow to fulfill his promise and that he's letting evil go. Y'all, he's patient because his desire is not that you would perish, but that you would come to repentance. See, there are people here this morning, you know who you are, You've not believed on Jesus. You've not placed your faith in him. And don't think that God's perceived lack of judgment against you is because he's okay with all that you're doing. It's because he's okay with your sinfulness. God's patience towards you is not so that you would draw that conclusion. It's so that you would come to a knowledge of the truth. It's so that you would come and reach repentance. You see, God did not bring wrath on his people when they said wrong things about him, such as he, he loves evil. God is patient, desiring that they would come to a knowledge of the truth and repent of their wrong ways, repent of their sin, and believe on him, be refined by the one that he is, is sending and I want you to know this morning that God is patient towards you. And if you have not believed on Jesus, know this morning that God's patience, he could have dealt with you long ago. The first moment that you sinned, he could have struck you dead, but God is being patient, desiring that you would repent and believe on him. You see, God displays this patience all the way back in Malachi, all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, and God is that way today. Do not think that God's patience or his seemingly lack of judgment against your sin and your wrongdoing is the stamp of approval. Church, know this morning that God's patience is to lead you to repentance. God is wanting you to see his refiner, Jesus. He is wanting you to see the blood of Jesus and to know that that is what will forgive you of your sins. That is what will make you right with a holy God. Nothing else. Praise God for his patience. I think about Dale, who just shared with us. For 25 years, Dale did not walk with God. Dale did not believe in God. And God was patient. God didn't strike him dead the moment he sinned, the moment he said something that was wrong about God. He patiently endured Dale's sin because his desire was to lead him to repentance. 
Perhaps God's doing that with you today. He's patiently enduring all the sin that you're living in because he is wanting you to see that he has sent a refiner. He's wanting you to know that there will be a day of judgment. We don't know when. But before that day comes, he wants you to look to Jesus. Look to the one who will forgive you of your sins. Look to the one who will make you right with him. That's our only hope. The blood of Jesus is our only hope. The last song in your bulletin, uh, I don't even know what it is, I crossed it out. He will hold me fast. I asked Tyson, I just texted Tyson the other day and I said, Tyson, you know, I've been thinking, uh, could we change that? Let's sing nothing but the blood because I want us as we leave to be thinking It is nothing but the blood of Jesus that will heal us of our sins and that will make us right with God. As we sing this last song, let's let's be thinking about that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the word from Malachi to your people. God, we thank you that even though your people were saying such awful things as that those who do, do evil in the sight of the Lord, he delights in them. Even in the midst of that, you were patient. You patiently endured it, and we know that your patience is meant to lead us to repentance. God, would you help us to see Jesus, that he is our refiner, that he is the one who will take care of our sins if we only look to him, believe in him, and obey him. God, we pray that we would be focused on the blood the blood of Jesus that washes away all of our sins. We pray these things in his name. Amen. If you need to respond, I'll be here to to talk. Let's, Let's think about the blood of Jesus as we sing.